0: Well, I have to say one of the greatest joys this first few weeks I've been here is getting to introduce some of my best friends to you and giving them a chance to get to know you. And so I want to introduce our speaker for this morning. Uh, He's a bit of a tough one to introduce because I could introduce him um, as sort of a theological buff as a professor of theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary where he serves. But on the other hand, I could talk to you about him as the president of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood as he speaks and writes and does media interviews on things related to gender and sexuality, which has kept him especially busy over these last few months, if not years as well. And yet, if you really want to know our speaker, what you need to know is he's passionate about basketball. So we spent many a year in my basement, ostensibly studying Hebrew and really just watching the playoffs. And uh, had a wonderful time doing it. He loves basketball. The one thing he said as he got into town yesterday is he said, just take me down to Bud Walton Arena. So I drove him down. We went down to the arena, probably better than the football field, um, <laughs> went down to that arena, and he gave me a tutorial on all things Arkansas basketball, which was wonderful. And yet, to really know him, you need to know him as the white rapper from Maine. You heard me right. Crosswords is his stage name. Rap is his game. He may entertain you this morning with a little rap. I don't know. I leave that to your hands. Before he ever preached or taught or was a professor, that's how I knew him. The guy who loved to rap God's Word. And some of my fondest memories was of when he would leave happy birthday raps to my kids on these old things we call answering machines when they had their birthdays, some of the best memories I have, and our kids wanting Owe, Dr. Owen Strand, but they referred him as Owe, to wrap them their birthday, happy birthday wishes. So that's the fond memories I have. I am greatly overjoyed, thankful that I get to introduce Dr. Owen Strand to come to bring God's word in whatever form he might like.
1: I'm not wrapping this sermon, just so you know. Do not fear. Well, I want to thank you, Brad, for um, that kind and unexpected introduction, um, winding through the various contours of my life as it did. Uh, much I had forgotten, in fact. Uh, thank you so much for, and tried to forget, uh, thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to be here with you. It is a joy uh, to speak to you in this beautiful sanctuary. So thank you for that um, before we open, let me, uh, let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. I pray that you would make it rich and fruitful and blessed. I pray that we will not see this as a spiritual exercise that we do on a Sunday, but that we will see this as a feast time for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. You know, I enjoy so much about my children. I am married to the lovely Bethany. She could not be here with me today, but we have been married for going on ten years. We have three children. They're seven, four, and one, and there's something about the baby. I have a little baby girl. She's, she's the one-year-old, and she just gets you. She gets me. She, she has me uh, around her finger. Um, She has her own vocabulary. Many of you know this with children. They develop their own strange vocabulary just before they actually begin to speak real words. And so my favorite word that my one-year-old speaks is this. Okay, get ready. Busis. I have no idea what that means. Um, But she says it regularly except for the times when I try to get her to say it. You know, I'll I'll say it so that I can hear her say it, because her just saying the word brings me great joy, this strange vocabulary that she has created, but then she won't say it. But no matter whether she obeys me or follows me in in saying busis, now this is going to be in your mind for the rest of the sermon. Great. Um, regardless of whether she follows me, she brings me so much joy. This is what children do. We play and I tickle her and she giggles and shrieks with joy. And then there are times when in the midst of playing together, suddenly a switch is flipped and she starts fussing. Sometimes she starts crying. And I I don't know what has happened. I'm, I'm a guy. I'm not attuned to all the workings of child psychology and so I have to stop and sort of step back and try to care for her as she is fussing. You could say it like this. Her weeping sounds a bit like her rejoicing at times. Sometimes it's just a quick second transition from laughter and shrieking with delight to um, crying. My daughter's example reminds me, oddly enough, of a very biblical scene, a, a poignant one. In the book of Ezra, a little-noticed Old Testament book, we discover a brief but emotionally powerful display of simultaneous rejoicing and weeping. In Ezra 3, 10-13, a small band of Israelites celebrate the laying of the temple of the Lord. As the builders place their stones, the people in the book of Ezra Chapter 3, Worship God. If you have a a Bible, turn with me to Ezra 3, verses 10 through 13, or feel free to just hear me read the very word of God to you this morning. Ezra 3, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests... And Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard. Far away. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. We are picking up in the middle of the story and reading this section from Ezra 3, a little noticed section in a little noticed Old Testament book. You probably have not heard, I'm just guessing, a whole ton of sermons on the book of Ezra, but it's a powerful book for understanding the experience of the Christian in a fallen world. We're going to trace what that experience is as we go. For now, I want you to know that this book recounts how in 537 B.C., about 2,500 years ago, the people of God returned to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, many of you will know, and if you're new to all of this as a visitor, you're new to Christianity, that's fine. I'll just sketch a few details for you to catch you up. Jerusalem is the holy city. It's the city of David, the greatest king Uh, of the nation of Israel prior to his son Solomon. And the book of Ezra recounts how the people of God return to Jerusalem, but they return not in a state of triumph. They return to Jerusalem as a captive people. This is many years after Solomon established the temple in the city of Jerusalem. In this book, in Ezra chapter 3, the people are only returning to the holy city, because their pagan ruler Cyrus of Persia has allowed them to return. So here's here's the basic scope, okay? Israel is no longer a sovereign nation. It no longer essentially rules itself and battles the great nations of the ancient near eastern world winning majestic victories over them in the name of God. Now Israel is a captive people in 537 BC. They can only enter the holy city. Their city Because a pagan king, prompted by Almighty God, has allowed them to do so. This is an inversion of the way things are supposed to work for Israel. Persia is giving orders to Israel. Israel was made by Almighty God to command Persia. Stand down Babylon. Triumph over the Philistines. But those days are over. Those days are long past. Now, Cyrus, nudged by the sovereign working of Yahweh, of God, decrees in Ezra 1 verse 2 that the house of God should be rebuilt. This is language in the Old Testament for the temple, which uh, Brad referenced earlier. So what happens is 42,000 Israelites return to Jerusalem, to the holy city. 42,000, and they find a once glorious city in ruins. 14 months after they arrive, when the time is 536 B.C., they make a start. They start rebuilding formally, laying the foundations once again of the temple of God. Now, as I said, this has all happened before in the glory days of Israel. Under Solomon, son of David, over 150,000 workers built the temple. I want you to think about those numbers for a minute. 150,000 construction workers employ in the ancient Near East. This tells you something about how Solomon invested in the temple, right? <laughs> Anytime you set 150,000 people on a project, that's a project you are very serious about. And the temple was magnificent. It was the center of the worship of God. Gold sparkled throughout the majestic building. The walls were lined with gold. The most holy place was inlaid with gold. The lampstands were made of gold. All this beauty pointed to the majesty of the God of Israel, the one who made covenant with his people, who promised To be their God and never forsake them and kept that promise. What you are encountering in the Old Testament is fundamentally this. A God who promises to make a people for himself and remain with them. It's really the storyline of the Old Testament. The New Testament in the Bible is really about God keeping that promise even after it seemed like he had forgotten it. But he had not forgotten. Blood was sprinkled in the temple. We tend to think of the temple as this very neat and clean place. And in many senses, it was. But the temple was the center of Israelite worship. And in order for a sinful people to enter the presence of Almighty God, they had to offer sacrifices to cover their sin. And so blood ran red in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant dwelt in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was the embodiment, a physical display of the presence of God to be with his people. There's a lot happening, as you can probably tell, with the temple in the Old Testament. Fundamentally, the temple signals that God is with his people people. All the strictures you read about, all the building details that you can read about in the Old Testament narratival books, they're all pointing to this. God is with his people. God will rule his people. God will persevere his people. In the holy city, the holy God met his holy people in the holy place. The original dedication of this temple crackled with happiness. The feeling that comes from standing in the middle of of the kindness of God, that we're still back in the days of Solomon here, just to set the foundation, we're returning to Ezra in just a minute. We need to read from 2 Chronicles 5, verses 6 through 14, to get a sense for how Ezra 3 is different from the original building of the temple with the 150,000 workers and the gold-laid fixtures and all the rest. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 6. I want to read several verses to you to set this scene, the original building. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets, That Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, and when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters." And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Think of what these words are signifying. Think of how important, by the way, musical worship is in this era. All these singers, all all those who are making music to God in different ways. 120 trumpeters. 120 trumpeters is a lot of trumpeters. Some of you know that one trumpeter learning to play the trumpet can do a fair amount of damage to your ears, practicing in the house. Well, this is 120 of them playing in unison to God. This is not a quiet affair. The temple was not this place where you know you were supposed to look at it in the most sanitized uh, aspect possible. You were supposed to see the temple as pulsing with joy and life because of God, because this is where God is worshiped. There's no IMAX display that could do justice to this moment in Israel's history when the original temple is laid under Solomon. But now we have to go back. Now we have to go back to Ezra 3, many years after the first temple is built. This moment, this happy moment under Solomon doesn't last The kings and the people of God do not remain faithful to him. The Davidic dynasty slides into the sea. One wicked ruler after another pursues his own gain. The worship of the people is compromised. Eventually, the nation is overrun, first by Babylon, 722 B.C., then by Persia, 587 B.C. The unthinkable happens. The covenant people who are made to rule the earth become an exile people. You know, this could sound familiar even In our context in 2015, it seems like a much favored people in this country. America is not a Christian nation, but there there can be a note at least of which we can understand this text, I think. Just a small thread of connection. feels sometimes today like we're an exile people. So we return to the days of Ezra. In Ezra 3, the foundation of the temple is laid once more. Verse 10 mentions David. Suggesting that an ember of the kingdom of David still glows in Jerusalem. The worship the worship proceeds according to the directions of David, king of Israel, verse 10 says. Davidic worship may have died out in the holy city, but it has not died altogether. In verse 11, the people sing the same refrain that they used to praise God when the, when the temple was first built. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. But now, now, here's why we read that passage from Chronicles. Now, there is no glory of God filling the temple. Did you see that? That's why we need the contrast. There is no cloud. It's not to say that God is not pleased by what is happening in Ezra 3. I think he is. But the olden days, the glory days, have departed The sense of majesty of the presence of God is gone. Many of the priests and Levites begin to weep. They remember the olden glory. They recall the blessing of God that has departed. The kingdom is lost. The nation is conquered. Solomon is dead His throne is in storage. It's in mothballs. This short passage is a window into all the crashing disappointment of the Old Testament. This passage is a picture of what happens ultimately when a people fall away from God. But yet, but yet, in verses 12 and 13 of Ezra 3, Some people are shouting aloud for joy. It's the case, is it not, that the temple is being rebuilt, however haltingly. It's taking forever. There are not 150,000 workers on the temple. There are only 42,000 people in Ezra uh, residing in the holy city. But worship has flared up. A little candle has has been lighted in the darkness. There's a note of hope. And so all at once... All at once, joyful shouting and loud weeping, mingling together. The glory has faded. Israel is in a state of Ichabod. The glory has departed. And yet, and yet, a few stones have been laid. Joy and weeping mingled together. Why are we talking about this? Why focus on an interesting moment in the Old Testament from 2,500 years ago from a little-read, little-preached book that has little to do, ostensibly, with your life in 2015 in America? Why are we talking about the ancient Near East at all? I want to suggest to you that this episode actually has everything to do with you and me. Everything to do with us. Let me unpack why this is so in just three quick points. This is the substance of what I have remaining for you. Three quick points that, it, that connect this scene to your life now. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you are going through at this stage in your life. This is something for all of us, for everyone. First, the temple rebuilding reminds us that the Christian lives in a fallen world. And this means that we experience a regular cascade of joy and sorrow, often at the same time. I think back to what Brad prayed for a minute ago in the pastoral prayer. You're simultaneously praying in this church, as in thousands of churches just like this, all across the world. You're simultaneously praying Delighting in new birth, children being born. What is happier than that in natural terms? And at the same time, you're praying for sickness. For those who are ready to depart this life, we experience a regular intermingling of joy and sorrow often at the same time. Now, we are not in Jerusalem. We are not held captive by Persia. There are no Levites around here. There are not 120 trumpeters that I'm about to queue up over here. They missed their cue. Okay, that's not going to happen. So we can't read this episode like a newspaper, right? But there is continuity between Ezra 3 and now, as well as discontinuity. We are the people of God as the church. We have been sprinkled with the blood of of Jesus. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus made atonement for our sins, and he made atonement for all who will re- repent and believe in his name. So you and I no longer go to a temple to worship God. This is not a temple. You are the temple, we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6:19 doesn't mean we don't love where we meet and we don't value our, our buildings. We treasure them. We're thankful to God for them. We don't take them for granted, especially in a day of LGBT laws and initiatives and these sorts of things. But we are not looking for a building to standardize and shape our worship. We have direct <laughs> access to God, so we don't look to Jerusalem, like over in the Middle East, for our hope. We can be thankful for Jerusalem. Tremendous amounts of biblical history there. I hope one day to visit. I never have. I would love to visit. But we're not looking to that city for our hope. We are looking to the sky for our hope. Soon, Christ will come on the clouds. Soon, he will sweep away all hands that are raised against him. Soon, he will end all initiatives that are struck against the people of God. Soon he will right every wrong. Soon he will dry every eye. That is your hope. Your hope is not in recovering some halicon vision of America. Much as we pray for our country, as the Bible commands us to, much as we pray for our rulers to be just and righteous, much as we yearn For children not to be abused and sexual sin, not to be standardized and horrible things not to happen. This is not our hope. Our hope is in the clouds. That's where our hope is. People say sometimes Christians seem to believe in a kind of fairy tale God. We want to tell them it's worse than you think. We believe that a man is coming from the sky. And he will redeem his people. And he will sweep away his enemies. And he will make all things new. That is our hope. It's worse than you can imagine. We believe Jesus is coming on the clouds. That's your hope today. Much as you care for your country. Much as you care for your region. And you should. That is not your hope. The restoration of this area. I live in Missouri. The um, continuation of generally good uh, social mores is not my hope. And if it is my hope, I will be sorely disappointed, and so will you. This is what the Israelites learned. They lived in, essentially, a God-designed, God-powered nation, and they lost it all. They lost everything. But they discovered, even in the darkness, that God was still their God, that he still watched over them, that he was going to persevere them. You and I are just like these people. We are all in Jerusalem weeping. You and I are, we can close our eyes and be in Jerusalem and taste what they are tasting. Think about your sin. Your sin is not an abstract reality. Your sin is a living, horrible, cancerous weed in your heart and mine, right? What does our sin prompt when we are honest about it, when we strip away the excuses and we stop talking about how somebody hurt us 20 years ago? What does our sin prompt? It prompts weeping. Sin causes us to weep. That's what's happening in Ezra 3. But that's not all. A, a fallen world leads us to weep. A little boy washing up on a beach, three years old, dead, dead. Causes us to weep. The passage of time causes us to weep. You look back at your life and you think, how the decades have fled like the shadow on the mountain. Six decades gone. My children grown up. Death awaiting me. That causes us to weep in Ecclesiastes kind of way. Abortion leads us to weep. The fact that what is the pinnacle of wickedness is seen as something good, as a right, leads us to weep. Schism, division in the church, in a small group, in a friendship, ruptured by jealousy, leads us to weep. We are all, in Jerusalem, weeping. But we also find great joy in this life. So we're both groups, aren't we? We're the people who are shouting till their lungs are hoarse with delight. A new marriage brings joy. A baby brings delight. Think about what happens when there is genuine confession of sin in a marriage. A marriage that has grown crusty and brittle. And there's these patterns where you talk past one another. You circle around the tension in the marriage. Because you don't want to get honest with each other. Think about what happens when the ice thaws. And there's genuine confession when perhaps for the first time a husband leads in that duty and owns his sin, owns it, no excuses, and confesses it to his wife. And she is shocked. <laughs> she thought they were going to do this kind of dance for the next 30 years. And instead, he's being real, and she confesses her sin as well. There's great joy in this life, is there not? Think about reading the word, praying, seeing God grow you now. Some of you have recently become a Christian or you are delighting in your Christianity, in your God-given faith. How joyful is it to pray and know that God hears you, to read the word and know that God is ministering to you. We are all in Jerusalem rejoicing, weeping, And rejoicing at the same time. This is what this episode reminds us of first. Second, the temple rebuilding speaks of our own calling. It tells us our calling. You wouldn't think that if you just skipped across Ezra 3 in your morning devotions, got the coffee out, bleary eyed, kid was up two times in the night, and you're just like, you're just trying to read the Bible for 10 minutes. Actually, this passage is giving you your charter if you connect it to the New Testament as a Christian. What do I mean? Your calling is this, to both rejoice and mourn with your brothers and sisters as the temple of God. It's pretty simple, isn't it? That's our calling. The Bible is not okay with you crying. Guy or girl, defy the stereotypes. The Bible is not okay with you being really happy. The Bible commands you to both rejoice and to weep. Think of Romans 12, 15 in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says this. Very simple instructions, not a lot of context. But I think, I think it could be that he has Ezra 3 and other texts in the back of his mind. He knows scripture. He knows it cold. He says this. Rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep. It is not only okay to rejoice and to weep. It is commanded of us. Do you know that? It's commanded of you to enter into your brother or your sister's joy when they get a job and you don't have one yet. Turn that around. It's commanded of you to enter into your brother or sister's sadness. When they can't find one. Both people in the relationship have a God given exhortation. Both of them have a role to play. This is according to Romans 12. This is an extra credit as a Christian. This is what it means to be a believer in a fallen world. This is true of every one of us. It is especially true that a pastor leads in these duties. The Levites are the ones who most weep, the priests when the foundation is relayed in Jerusalem in Ezra 3. And it is, it is going to be the pastor of the New Testament church who is most going to come into contact with sin and suffering. The pastor is the figure appointed to shepherd souls between two stations, non-existence and eternity. Think of what a role this is. The pastor must counsel the struggling. The pastor and the elders must reprimand the straying. The pastor must weep with the sick. The pastor must pray with the dying. The pastor must rejoice with the happy. This is holy work. It takes a special man to do it. And I praise God that you have Brad Wheeler to lead you in it. Brad is going to have with the elders great cause for rejoicing here in his ministry just begun. He is going to watch his young students discover that all the promises of the sexual revolution fail. And only Jesus makes good on what he has claimed. Brad is going to rejoice as he hears of faithful older members who tithe, sacrificially, but anonymously, and have done so for decades and have kept the church going in the meantime. He's going to see love and good deeds built up in this place, this church. He's going to watch as God honors his preached word by giving life, life to the lost, and fresh life, fresh encouragement, fresh hope to the church. The pastor leads the church, just like the Levites in Ezra's day, in weeping and rejoicing. So the pastor leads, but all of us are enfranchised by Ezra 3 and by Romans 12:15. Do you need, let me ask you a question, do you need something fancy to minister to fellow believers and even to those outside the church? Do you need a degree? Do you need to go to seminary? Do you need to read systematic theologies in your spare time to have something to say to people who are broken? No. Here's what you need. Can you cry? Then cry with the hurting. Can you rejoice? Then rejoice with the joyful. Doing that and that alone will be a profound ministry to people around you. You don't have to be Bible answer person, male or female version. You may know some scripture. You may know some doctrine. I hope you do. I hope you are built up in the truth over time. But fundamentally, to honor God, you need to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We tend to seek spiritual equilibrium as believers. We tend to think that uh, we need to keep the levels balanced like uh, the audio is right now. You know, you don't want me screeching in your ear at present, right? You want the audio, you want the audio levels nicely equalized, okay? We, t- we tend to perform that kind of thing as Christians. In other words, if somebody's getting too high, mm, we've got to tug on their string a little bit. Why don't you tone it down a little bit? Don't be so happy all the time. On the other hand, when somebody's not doing well, and I'm not against, of course, you know, encouraging somebody and helping them see the truth and leading them out of misery. There's obvious biblical categories for that. But on the other hand, weep with those who weep. You don't have to, you know, punch somebody in the shoulder to to do your duty as a Christian friend and say, just kind of get over it, you know? Let's just get over it. Let's just watch some football. You need to weep. This is, I guess in some, what a theologian or a pastor leads in. Weeping and rejoicing. If someone is deeply sad in this church body, you are right to weep with them. If someone in this church body is soaringly happy, you are right to celebrate with them. Minister to them according to biblical categories. God is still at work, even as he was in the days of Ezra. Remember this, wherever you are, wherever you personally are, you you may be between jobs, you may have just had a miscarriage, you may have just had twins born, you may be uh, in the flush of young life in college, university, and loving it. You may be hanging on by a thread and about to get kicked out because of academic troubles. You may be enjoying your golden years, 50s, 60s, 70s. They may be brutal for you. Remember, wherever you are, that God is working now as in the days of Ezra. And and remember this furthermore. God is a restoring God. God loves to take what is most broken, what seems furthest away from his kingdom, and to draw it near. God loves to move a pagan king, Cyrus, to call people back to the holy city. Cyrus doesn't even know what he's doing in Ezra 1. But God is up to something far greater. This is how our God works. This is how our God will work with you. If you feel irredeemable, if you feel like you have no hope, if you feel like your sin has squandered the promises of God, be assured that today the foundation can be relaid in Jerusalem. There is infinite hope with God. God never runs out of hope. The gospel is near. And if you will repent of your sin and confess your sin to God, he will receive you as a believer. If you are a believer and you have wandered from God, if you will confess and repent, God will draw near to you. Last point as we round third base. Third point, the temple rebuilding foreshadows the greater rebuilding. That's what we need to see lastly about Ezra 3. Soon, the whole earth will be the temple of God. Soon, Christ will dwell here with his people. The temple Solomon built was, was grand. It was glorious. The temple the exiles built in Ezra, chapter 3, was much smaller and much humbler. The glory of God did not fill it as in the days of Solomon. Eventually, it crumbled as all buildings on this earth must and will. But there has been a rebuilding. God is making a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. We are his temple. Jesus dwells in us. We ourselves are the resting place of God's spirit. Where God's presence is, there is his blessing. Do you see how blessed you are to have the Holy Spirit? You don't need spirit plus. There isn't something outside of Jesus that you need to be enduringly happy. This is what we are all tempted by. Satan wants to throw a little curveball into things. God, thank you for salvation. That resolved the primary need of my life. Now, if you could see fit to deliver, plus. Now, if you could just extend that and give me something else, then then God, I really and truly would be lastingly happy. I'm grateful for Jesus, don't get me wrong. But if I could just have X, then I would be lastingly happy. This is a lie that all of us are tempted in some way to believe. What is your X? What is your plus? What is it you think God must give you for you to be happy? you already have what you need for your faith to endure into all the ages and beyond. You have Jesus as a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. But brothers and sisters, there's a greater rebuilding to come. Jesus has begun the new creation by washing us with his blood. You and I are like an appetizer at TGI Fridays. You didn't think TGI Fridays was coming, but there it is. You and I are like the appetizer do you know this? This is true in a 1 Corinthians 15. Sense. We we are looking ahead to a total new creation. When Jesus returns and remakes the heavens and the earth. A new heavens and a new earth. And you and I are supposed to look at one another. Brothers and sisters. The church. And see a foretaste of eternity. This is what the church is. We are the first fruits of this harvest that is soon to come. Jesus is going to return. Think of Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away did you catch that that is temple language Dwelling place Jesus is returning the covenant is not forgotten it can feel like it now It certainly feels like it in Syria Or in the Middle East for Christians It's feeling very much At times i'm sure Like they have been forgotten, but they have not been forgotten. It can be the same for you and me We are not forgotten either soon Jesus will make his His dwelling place with man. It will be the whole earth the whole earth will be his temple. This this is your hope and mine. This is your only hope. This is it. There is one train coming through the station. There are not many passageways to God. There are not many hopes. There are not many truths. There is one way, one truth, and one life, and it is Jesus. This is as true for you if you are coming to Christ this morning as it is true for you if you have been a Christian for 75 years. You have one hope. You have a sure hope. If God is not secured as your hope this morning, cry out to God and be saved. I just wrote a book on Chuck Colson. Some of you will know Colson. Colson was the type of person you look at and you think, he's never going to be saved. He's lost. He's high and mighty. He works for the president of uh, America, the most powerful figure on earth, and he's never, we're never going to get him. And yet, it was in the middle of Watergate in the early 1970s that God, essentially much like Saul of Tarsus, struck Colson down and called him to himself. And made him brand new. (laughs) And then as soon as Coulson was a Christian. Sent him to prison. How's that for your best life now? How's that working out? I'm going to write that book. Your best life now. Prison edition. (laughs) Follow Jesus and you might get to be incarcerated. That'll sell like hotcakes. That'll put me on Christian TV. We've got to recognize. That following Jesus. Is our only hope. But God doesn't promise us a certain plan, a certain vision of what our life is going to look like in this life. God will upend your life. God will destroy your sin. God will ruin your best laid plans. But Jesus is worth it all. Jesus is your hope. You know, heaven is not going to be great because you'll find your favorite puppy there. Heaven is not going to be great because we will drink the best possible artisan coffee or play perfect soccer. Heaven is not going to be great because you are, you are united with your spouse. How mysterious that is. The person you, you love, the person your heart pulses for, the person whose hand you hold through all the storms of life. Then the end comes... And you, you are not husband and wife again in the new heavens and new earth. Why? Because you are united to Jesus. There is a greater marriage of which every Christian, single or married, is a part. That's where it's headed. God is our hope, not some vision of heaven we are sold. Jesus, bringing the new creation with him out of the clouds is what we are looking for. He is both the slain lamb who saves and he is the cosmic king who rules. So know this. Right now, there is going to be weeping and rejoicing. This is going to be true in a very small way. When you and I are fellowshipping, enjoying time together, this is going to be true for those of us who are parents and we're trying to decipher the strange vocabulary of our children. I still don't know what busis is. I don't think I'll ever know. I do know this, in every season, when weeping mingles with rejoicing, God is for us. His covenant is sure. And he will keep his promises until the end. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will encourage us. I pray that you will fill us with hope today. We have thought back to an episode thousands of years ago seemingly forgotten seemingly unimportant and yet in it we find we find who we are as a people we are a weeping people we are those who weep and we are a rejoicing people those who shout with delight I pray that you will help us to own this call I pray that we will not shirk from the command to rejoice with one another and to mourn with one another and I pray that you will purify our hearts such that our only delight. Our only joy will be you in Jesus. Awesome name. We pray. Amen.